another episode of the Feminist Born Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy, where we try to understand the practice of plural marriage as it was practiced in Mormonism. If this is your first time tuning in, I would recommend starting at episode one. These episodes are meant to go in chronological order. And I'm going to bring you a little lighter episode if you've been following the series in order. We've gotten into the Utah period where there's some dark, dark, heavy stuff. And so I wanted to bring you a little bit of levity. We're going to be talking about some of the polygamous houses that were used and very much tied into polygamy. Some of them you might have known and some of them you might not have known. But I think that houses might sound like a very boring topic, but actually these houses house, if you will, history, and are really, really integral to the story of polygamy, at least in Utah. So we're going to talk about those today. It's going to be kind of like a lighthearted episode before we begin or continue to talk about some dark issues. We're going to be talking about uh, the Beehive House, the Lion House, and the Gardo House. All of them were tied with Burnham Young, and all of them were important in understanding polygamy and plural marriage. So the first one I'm going to talk about is the Beehive House. Now, many people know about the Beehive House. If you've been downtown in Salt Lake City, you can see the Lion House and the Beehive House. As a fun aside, I have a particular fascination with these homes. Um, For my eighth birthday, this is sort of a special tradition for some privileged white Mormon girls in Utah. We usually like to have a tea party for our eighth birthday at the Lion House. And I was one that got to do that. My mom set that up for me, and it was really special. I got to invite my friends. We got a special room in the Lion House, um, and we would have a t- and we had a, like a tea party with not actual tea because Mormons don't drink tea. Uh, I don't remember what we had, but I do remember that we had Lion House food, and I got a porcelain doll that year. So I've always been sort of connected to to these homes. So let's talk about the Beehive House. The Beehive House is one of two official residences of Brigham Young. He he built these homes downtown. This would be huge in history. So we're going to be talking about this a lot through the series. We've already talked about this. A lot of his wives resided in these places. The Beehive House gets the name because it has this famous beehive sculpture on top of the house. And it was also designed by the famous Mormon architect, Truman Angel. He was also the man that designed the Salt Lake Temple. So Truman Angel uh, is a famous name in Mormon history. He also happens to be Brigham Young's brother-in-law. Um, he was brother to Mary Ann Angel, Brigham Young's first wife, well, second wife. Um, so Truman Angel designed the Salt Lake Temple. He designed the, the Beehive House, and he would later design the Lion House. The Beehive House was constructed in 1854. So the Beehive House was the first house that was constructed. It was before two years before the Lion House. The Lion House is right next to, it's adjacent to the to the Beehive House. And both homes are one block east of the Salt Lake Temple. So if you're around Temple Square, you can literally just walk over and see the Beehive House and the Lion House. Um, 
The Beehive House is interesting. It's made of adobe. It's this famous, a lot of the early pioneer homes you'll see are made of adobe. And since this was built in 1854, this is really early. Remember that the saints came in 47 and this is built in 54. Um, it's made of adobe and sands and sandstone. He built, Brigham Young would build this house because he is acquiring a lot of wives at this time and he has children by them and he wanted to kind of centralize where he had his family. And as, as his family grew, they obviously outgrew the Beehive House and the Lion House was built to accommodate them and became his official residence. Now, we've talked about some of Brigham Young's wives before and it's, you have to understand that when some of them came to Utah, Brigham Young, even though he married them, even though he married Joseph's wives, he didn't consider all of them real wives in his mind. He might have had children with them. He might have taken care of them to an extent, but he didn't have all of his wives live with him. So when I'm talking about Brigham Young and his wives coming over and living in the Lion House, you have to understand these are privileged women. These are women that he handpicked. Not all of Brigham's wives would all live together. Some of them would transition in and out of these houses from time to time. But Brigham did not keep all his family together. And in fact, I, I don't know how you could keep 55 women plus all of those children together. That would be very difficult. So he builds a beehive house. They outgrow it. And so they build the lion house next to it. Uh, and the beehive house was sort of where Mary Ann Angel, Truman Angel, who designed it, his sister, where she would reside. Uh she was, it was supposed to be built for her, but eventually she chooses to live in a smaller private residence called the White House, which was also on the property. Young's first polygamous wife, Lucy Ann Decker Young, uh, became the hostess of the Beehive House and lived there with her nine children. And people are saying that this is probably because she was the first plural wife, so she had some seniority. We do know that Mary Ann Angel obviously had more seniority since she was Brigham's, I mean, she, she was Brigham's first wife in the polygamous scheme, but remember, Brigham's first wife died in Nauvoo, so Mary, Mary Ann Angel is Brigham's second wife, but also the first, like the head wife, if that makes any sense, it's kind of confusing. But she was said to be, Mary Ann Angel was super obedient, whatever Brigham wanted, she kind of did. So it was Lucy Ann Decker Young who resided in the Beehive House and hosted it. And um, the Beehive House, when you go in, it's connected by a suite of rooms to the Lion House. It's almost, it almost has this hotel sort of feel, this old hotel sort of feel, uh, feel. And this suite would include Brigham Young's office and his private bedroom, the actual bedroom where he died in 1877. And it, the Beehive House served as the executive mansion for the territory of Utah from 1852 to 1855. So even though it was constructed in 54, the territory and the area was, as it was being built, was sort of used as its official resident. So Brigham Young used it as an official territorial stop and then sort of built the home around it. Not only that, but for a long time, this is where Brigham Young would entertain very important guests. Eventually, the Beehive House was replaced as the executive mansion by a much grander, much more opulent second empire mansion, the Gardo House, Gardo House, which I'll talk about. But that didn't get finished until after Brigham Young's death, so we'll talk about that in a little while. Um, there, 
the beehive house and the line house become important because remember, when Brigham Young comes to Utah, he convinces the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to give him this sort of unique sense of power in the Mormon Church. We talked about this a lot in the Secession Crisis episode, but Brigham Young is not ruling under the same established authority as, say, Joseph Smith, at least not at first. It eventually evolves into something similar, but when Brigham Young comes to Utah, all property belonged to the church, which meant all property belonged to Brigham Young. So Brigham Young was in charge of all the property, and when he died, it caused a lot of issues because Brigham Young's family would be living and residing in all of these properties owned by the church. And then his successors, John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff, became the president of the church. So the property went to them. And so his family, like, and this is, this is a common issue with this sort of the church holdings, at least for, you know, the first several prophets of the church, how to deal with who got the property. I mean, we know that Emma and Joseph Smith had the same pro- problem when Brigham Young took over. Does Emma own the property because she's residing in these homes or does Joseph? And Brigham Young's wives would find themselves in a similar situation. There was a lot of dispute about it um, after he died. And the Beehive House was ultimately given to Young's heirs who then sold the house to the LDS church. So that's kind of how they worked it out. The Beehive House was given to the family and then the family sold it to the church. As church property, it became the official home of church president Lorenzo Snow and his successor, Joseph F. Smith. Both of them would die in the mansion. So the Beehive House is important because we have Brigham Young who dies there, Lorenzo Snow, and Joseph F. Smith. Joseph F. Smith, who died in 1918, was the last church president to practice polygamy at the time of his death. Although, I mean... We'll get into that a little bit later, but he shared the residence with four of his wives. So he like officially was practicing it and shared it, shared the Beehive House with four of his wives. So a lot of people don't know that they connect the Beehive House with Brigham Young, but they don't realize that subsequent prophets after Brigham Young live there and live there with their plural wives. After Joseph F. Smith's death, the mansion became the home economics wing of the Latter-day Saints University. And then it became a dormitory for women. So before they're starting, you know, BYU, Idaho, BYU, they have the Latter-day Saints University and the Beehive House would become the dormitory for the women. They're learning home economics. The Young Women's Organization for the church also would rent out rooms for wedding receptions. And the Beehive atop the mansion was used to represent industry, which is an important concept in Mormonism. In fact, prior to statehood, the territorial government requested that the state be called Deseret. So we've called it, you've heard it called the Territory of Deseret, which is another word for honeybee, at least according to LDS belief. Instead, you know, the U.S. government chose the territory to be called Utah after the Indians, but the beehive later becomes incorporated as a state's official emblem. And if you're someone like me who grew up, it's really hard. I mean, I grew up knowing the beehive, the beehive, the beehive state. That's what we called Utah. So it's interesting to see that the beehive sort of represents this tension between the U.S. government and what they saw for the area and what Brigham Young saw for the area. And yet it still stands. So we still see remnants quite heavily 
in Utah culture and in Utah history with the Beehive. In 1960, the Beehive House was restored under the direction of Georgius Y. Cannon, who was a grandson to Brigham Young. And it's now a historic museum where you can see furnishings, many that are original to the house, but many that are not, that depict Brigham Young's family life in the mid-century. Let's talk about the Lion House now. The Lion House is also a large residence built also by Brigham Young, and it was built in 1856, so four years after the Beehive House. It was meant to add on to Brigham's growing family. He would have a lot of his children and his adopted and his foster children live there, and he would remember Brigham would own territory everywhere. Brigham owned everything, so he had other territories for these wives and children but the favorites were sort of housed in the Lion House. The house contains large public rooms with ground floor with 20 bedrooms on the upper floor and would house as many as 12 of young wives at, at a time. And famously, Eliza R. Snow lived there. She had a room of her own up there. Um, she Eliza R. Snow would never have children. And so she was famous for like not, you know, being around, living with all these children and not quite tolerating them very well. And again, the Lion House was designed by Truman Angel. And he sort of involved the design of this home around the concept of the statue of a lion. And the lion that is actually in the Lion House is sculpted by craftsman William F. Ward above the entrance. And it's just, we sort of start hearing Brigham being called the Lion of the Lord. He is called this, you know, fierce, fierce man that protects God's church. And we see that in the last two episodes that are really dark, that Brigham Young really, you know, was fierce. He was someone that you didn't want to mess with. And so the Lion House is where he would reside. Now, if you were favored by Brigham, you got a place at the Lion House. But we will see if you research any of Brigham's wives, it's transitory. Some of them are living there and some of them are not. I want to talk about the Gardo House really quick. Now, the Gardo house is not something I was ever familiar with. I didn't know that it existed. I had never heard of it before until I had gone to the Daughters of Utah Pioneer Museum in Salt Lake City. And if you're over there, I recommend going to that museum because it's fantastic. But they have a mini model of this. And they call it Amelia's Palace. Amelia's Palace. And that st- stood out to me because Amelia was Brigham Young's favorite wife. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Psycho, where, you know, the Bates Motel and there's that house on the hill, this is what I picture the Gardo house. If you're not looking at a picture of it right now, you can look at it, and I would recommend Googling Gardo house, G-A-R-D-O. You can picture this house on the movie Psycho, the old black and white version. There's this big, beautiful house, like with this big, beautiful window and this big, thick staircase. It's really a lot like the Gardo house. The Gardo house does not exist in Utah anymore. You can't, you can't see it. And it's a shame because it has some amazing history. Now, in a few episodes back, we talked about how Brigham Young Brigham Young's wives were lamenting, Mary Ann Angel was lamenting that one of Brigham's wives who had used to be the favorite was now being replaced by Amelia. Amelia Young was said to be Brigham's darling. He he would take her everywhere. She got the fanciest clothes. She got the best travel. She got the best food. 
and she would get this controversial house. It is called Amelia's Palace and was said to be one of the finest homes between Chicago and the West Coast. It had legendary architecture, legendary interior design. And many people, not just Brigham Young or Amelia, would be associated with it. Brigham Young would build this in the last years of his life. So this was built sometime after the Lion House and the Beehive House. He intended this to be, I mean, the Lion House and the Beehive House are beautiful and they're nice, but they are small and they're adobe and they are not something up to par with what Brigham Young saw his power reflecting. He wanted a big, beautiful home that would be something people talked about from the entire country. He intended this home to be a place where he could receive official callers and entertain dignitaries who traveled great distances to see the home itself. So he he selects a lot on the corner directly south of the Beehive House, and the construction begins in 1873. So almost 20 years after the Beehive House and Lion House, he decides to build the Gardo House. He was really fond of naming his homes, Brigham Young was, and so he borrowed the name Gardo from a Spanish novel, is is what some people say. Other people say that it came from something else, but um, one source says that he borrowed the name Gardo from a Spanish novel. Joseph Ridges would be the the man that designed Tabernacle Oregon on Temple Square, and um, he would help drop the plans for this along with William Harrison Folsom, who was Amelia Folsom's father. So he would be Brigham Young's, one of Brigham Young's father-in-laws. Folsom had been the church architect from 1861 to 1867 and had played a vital role in the construction of the Salt Lake Theater, the Salt Lake Tabernacle, the St. George Tabernacle, the Salt Lake Temple, the Manti Temple, the St. George Temple, and many private residences. So this is Brigham Young's favorite wife, Amelia's dad, and he has designed a lot of stuff. And you can definitely see his architectural influences on this home. There were widespread rumors at the time that this, that the Gardo house was being built for Harriet Amelia Folsom Young, who was allegedly Brigham's favorite wife. Now she was high in society. And of course, this was not confirmed at the time. It would be, you know, later confirmed when Brigham placed her in the home because he intended to make Amelia the official hostess, which would have been this great honor. According to um, Brigham Young's daughter, Susan Young Gates, she said that family members agreed that Amelia, who was young, childless, refined, and talented, would be the best candidate. So if other wives would complain, and I assume that they would have because this would be like the premier spot to live in Salt Lake City and only one wife could be the official hostess. And so the family members would have to agree that because Amelia was young, she didn't have child duties, and she was refined and talented, that she would be the ideal hostess to assume such large social responsibilities. Amelia, we're going to talk about her more hopefully in the future, but she became acquainted with Brigham Young on October 3rd, 1860 when he welcomed the Folsom's Wagon Company to Salt Lake City. She was said to be tall and graceful with blue eyes and light brown hair, and she was really intelligent and really charming. She was also an accomplished pianist and vocalist, so she could sing, 
and uh, she was just really refined. And this spoke to Brigham. He didn't want to have anybody represent him. He wanted to have beautiful, refined, talented women. Brigham Young began courting her almost immediately when he saw her, and they would marry on January 24th, 1863. And you can look up pictures of Amelia. Um, many of the wives were jealous, very jealous of her. So when they start building this this mansion, it was really slow. There were lots of delays obtaining lumber, plaster, granite, glass. I mean, he spared no expense for this. He was often away on church business and was not always around to sign requisitions or make important decisions. But um, it said that one time he, he went to St. George, and when he came home from his visit, he was really upset with the style of the home, calling it um, his own tabernacle organ. So he thought it represented too much the tabernacle organ. And you can actually see some some of that in this in the style of the picture of the home. It took about three years of construction, and it was nearing completion when something happened. There was an accident. Um, there was an accident that occurred near Arsenal Hill, which is now Capitol Hill in Utah. Um, there was a repository for gunpowder and explosive on Arsenal Hill, you know, for the name Arsenal Hill. Um, apparently on April 5th, 1876, two young hunters fired their guns into one of the powder magazines. The resulting explosion showered the city with 500 tons of boulders, concrete, and pebbles. So imagine this. It's a quiet day. All of a sudden, huge explosion. 500 tons of boulder, concrete, and pebbles go everywhere. Many people were injured, including the hunters, and I think eight a uh, few people were killed. The explosion also broke out several glass windows in the Gardo house, and new glass had to be ordered from the East Coast. And um, it took it took a while to get this back on track. Brigham Young would never live to see the completed mansion. He would die on August 29, 1877. And so then we have this conflict that I talked about earlier of where his estate went, who got what. And his estate was essentially divided into three parts. Church properties in his name, properties belonging to his private estate, and properties where the sort of legal ownership was really unknown. So this became a big issue for a lot of his, you know, family members. In his will, Brigham Young had provided both Mary Ann Angel Young and Harriet Aunt Amelia Folsom Young a life tenancy in the Gardo house. So he says, after I die, Amelia gets the house and so does Mary Ann Angel, his his first wife. But it wasn't so easy. The two women would have to secure their claims, and so they both briefly occupied the mansion while it was still being built because they didn't want anyone to take them aw- it away from them. Rem- remember, there was all this confusion. Who got what? There had to be a new prophet, so the new prophet's going to come in with new wives, and they're going to want a piece of this very opulent pie as well. So Marianne, Angel, and Amelia sort of move into this home, even though it's not finished yet. Although the legal ownership of the mansion was in question, um, the settlement credited to Young's heirs instead of the church at the highly inflated figure of 120000 Um And 20000 of that sum was eventually paid to Marianne, Angel, and Amelia Folsom. So there's tons and tons of money involved in all of this dispute. So you can imagine this didn't go lightly. John Taylor, would he succeeded President Young as church president. 
He had a counselor, George Q. Cannon, and other, and so they sort of suggested that Taylor, John Taylor should occupy the Gardo house because they think we're building this for the prophet. This belongs to the church. So now the prophet has to be there. Um, it, they also said that John Taylor repeatedly refused. He said, no, 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 I don't, you know, I don't want to move there. It's for Brigham Young's wives. However, the church members unanimously voted on April 9th, 1879 to make the Gardo house the official home for LDS church presidents. So after that vote in 79, President Taylor reluctantly accepted the decision. Um, so then they appointed some men, Moses Thatcher, William Jennings, and Angus M. Cannon, and they were appointed as, com- as a committee to oversee the mansion. The finished home was said to have four levels, including a basement with a tower on the northwest corner. The foundation and basement were made of granite. The exterior walls were two by six stud f- studs filled with adobe bricks with lath and plaster, and inside the two layers of lath was stucco on the outside of the house. The interior had woodwork, which in- included this very opulent, very beautiful spiral staircase, paneling, decorative trim. It was all carved into this black walnut by local artists. There was tons of elegant furnishings, paintings by local artists, and they had mirrors imported from Europe. They had uh, furnishings imported. On December 27th, 1881, the Desert News published a letter from John Taylor announcing a public reception and tour of the Gardo, Gardo House on January 2nd, 1882, from 11 a.m. until 3 p.m. And it was said that more than 2,000 people attended the reception and toured the home. President Taylor greeted all of the visitors who were entertained by two bands and several renditions by the Tabernacle Choir. A year later, on February 22, 1883, the mansion was dedicated as a house unto the Lord in a dedicatory prayer offered by Apostle Franklin D. Richards. So, John Taylor moves into the house. This was regarded by Mormons as a sort of fulfillment of prophecy. Legend had it before that when Taylor's financial circumstances had been the poorest, Heber C. Kimball boldly prophesied that Taylor would someday live in the largest and finest mansion in Salt Lake City. So they kind of saw this as a fulfillment of Heber C. Kimball's prophecy. There were, not everyone was happy with this. There were some Mormons and many non-Mormons who were not pleased with this fancy opulent home or Taylor's reception or occupancy of the home. Uh, remember, like, people in Utah are starving, and Brigham Young is building these big opulent homes, and the church presidents are living here. You think City Creek was bad. Imagine having City Creek take, literally take, like, the the money and the food from your mouth. At least that's how you saw it. Uh, Rachel Emma Woolley Simmons recorded in her journal, quote, Brother John Taylor gives a reception in the Gardo house. I have no fault to find with him for moving into that house, but I think it would have been more becoming if he had stayed in his own home. It was a great expense to furnish it in the style it had to be. I don't believe he is enjoying it much. I heard that his wives were not pleased with the move. End quote. And of course, at this time, they had the Salt Lake Tribune and the Desert News. The Desert News was the church's paper. The Salt Lake Tribune was the sort of voice of the other people that were the non-Mormons, the Gentiles. And it was extremely critical of the entire thing and the church in general. In an editorial published the day before the reception, the, the newspaper wrote, quote, The favored saints have received an invitation to call upon John, President John Taylor at the Amelia Pal- Palace tomorrow. We want the poor Mormons 
to mark the carpets, mirrors, the curtains, and the rest, and then to go home and look at the squalor of their own lives, their unkempt wives, their miserable children growing up in despair and ignorance, and then reflect how much better it would have been for them instead of working hard for wages if they had only started out as Uncle John, determined to serve God for nothing but hash. End quote. The Tribune would go on to accuse the church of building up an aristocracy in Utah, where there were a few that would rule in luxury, while many, to support the luxury, were to suffer. And on January 5th, 1882, the Desert News would publish a rebuttal to the Tribune's scathing editorial, and they would say that Taylor had taken up the residency as a response to Mormon people who had voted for it, and that he didn't want to, and he was reluctant, but as he had a responsibility as church president, he should, quote, be at least as well housed and cared for as prominent men in church or state here or elsewhere. We are pleased to see that one of the veterans of the latter-day work, who has traveled from land to land, from sea to sea, who has suffered with the exiles and bled with the martyrs, forsaken all things for truth, is now surrounded with comfort and has a place to lay his head and to receive his friends, end quote. So they're saying, look, he's earned it. He's, he was there with Joseph Smith and now he has lived in poverty and now he is getting what he deserves. John Taylor even wrote a letter in, and published it in the Desert News expressing his own feelings about this situation. And he reminds critics that he didn't want to live there, but, you know, he needed it. He needed it there because that is what the people wanted. He said, quote, science should become the praise of the whole earth and that we in this land should take up a prominent and leading part in the art, science, architecture, literature, and everything that would tend to and exalt and ennoble Zion. It is the president's duty to take the lead in everything that is calculated to place Zion where she ought to be and foremost among the peoples, end quote. So John Taylor's saying, listen, I don't want to do this, but this is what the Lord wants. The Lord wants more culture in Zion. We, we have braved the harsh, harsh conditions here. We've lived a frontier life, and now we have to bring in culture and art and literature, and that is going to be the new era of Zion. Both newspapers um, would imply that the Gardo House was, occupied more than just Mormon leaders, and they were right about that. The Mormons would celebrate the church's jubilee in, in April 1880, and the house would be seen as sort of like this achievement of look how far they have come. It's sort of tangible proof that they had endured hardships and persecution and that all of those years were not in vain. And non-Mormons would see this Taylor's installation in the home as a threat to con the continual struggle that they felt with for political supremacy. This was the church yet again taking over, taking all the resources and living there. In 1882, another important event intensified suspicion and ill feelings between Mormons and non-Mormons. In March of that year, Congress would pass the Edmonds Act, which made polygamy a felon felony punishable by up to five years or a $500 fine. And we'll be talking about that in great detail coming up in a few episodes. Um, it also disenfranchised polygamists and declared them ineligible for jury duty or public office. So in response, John Taylor would hold a meeting in the Gardo House with 16 general authorities 
of the church to discuss the Edmonds law and its threat to the religious practices and statehood. And according to Wilford Woodruff, quote, President Taylor with the rest of us came to the conclusion that we could not swap off the kingdom of God or its laws or principles for the state government. So this house becomes the key, the center for where all these political happenings are happening. Um, in spite of polygamous pressures, things went on business with, as usual, with the Gardo house. Every morning at 8.30, George Reynolds, who is a secretary to the LDS Church First Presidency, reported for work at the mansion. Reynolds would record at least two important revelations that John Taylor received in the Gardo house. But eventually, President Taylor decided that the outward appearances, um, were a problem and he wanted to conform with the anti-polygamy laws. He told his wife's quote, under the circumstances, it will be better for me or for you to leave this place. You can take your choice. And so Taylor's wives opted out of the home and his sister Agnes Schwartz became matron of the home. So I bet you're wondering what happened to Amelia and Mary Ann Angel. We're going to talk about their lives in a little while, but as you can see, they were not in the Gardo house. So this was up to some controversy and you can imagine what that was like for Amelia. You know, the, the the Edmonds Act comes in, it's going to be a big deal. But the Gardo House would serve as a meeting place and a hiding place for people fleeing from federal marshals. The Gardo House was sort of this rendezvous where men and women on the underground would come and meet their loved ones, which is funny because it's so prominent. But people living in this mansion... um would use this to get the people living in the underground polygamous world when the government's after them to come meet. And uh, it said that, you know, marshals and deputies were always searching for polygamists. And it was a rule that the Gardo house had to be closed by 10 p.m. without exception, and no stranger was permitted after that hour. So they would let the polygamists in, and then if the marshals came, they're like, listen, the guard house is closed. You may not come in. And these these men were able to see their wives and family. Church leaders were especially under target by these laws, and uh, Taylor's home, Taylor would be under the most uh, pressure. And so he he was always under surveillance and the Gardo house was always under surveillance and um, John Taylor would eventually go underground. There was a massive raid on the Gardo house in 1885 in February and the raid was really unsuccessful, but it would follow other, other raids. It said that Taylor's tough, uh, tough sister, Agnes, who was hosting, often held raiding marshals and deputies at bay at the front door of the mansion, admitting no one unless he presented papers properly signed by federal judges. So she really did her job there. Um, they would, deputies tried to search for Charles W. Penrose, who was the editor of the De- Desert News. Um, they would comb the house from top to bottom, but they could not hide him, could not find him. But he was concealed in a specially built closet at the top floor. And it said that at one point the lawman stood within a foot of him. Penrose would later recall, quote, I had such a cold and wanted to cough so badly, I held my breath until I almost burst and was thankful Mr. Frank Dreyer, the U.S. Marshal, left so I could relieve myself from coughing, end quote. In 1886, John Taylor's family assembled in the Gardo House to celebrate his 78th birthday. John Taylor, who remained in hiding, didn't dare attend, but sent a letter expressing love and concern for his family. And he 
he was deeply sad that he couldn't be there with two of his favorite wives, Jane and Sophia, who were dangerously ill. Um, and then, you know, as the Edwards Tucker's act comes into place and polygamy takes a heavy toll in the church, uh, John Taylor would die and people would come see his remains at the Gardo house. They were lying in the state mansion and, um, then they had the funeral at the tabernacle. As the government starts to seize control more of Utah property, they seize the tithing office. They also seize the Gardo house, the church historian office, and other properties such as buildings, farms, mines, livestock, and other various corporations. The, the Mormons were faced to pay the government high rental fees to retain the use of the property. So the rent for the Garter house was initially set at $75 per month, but later skyrocketed to $450 per month. Wilford Woodruff would succeed John Taylor as the fourth president of the church. He kept an office in the Garter house where he frequently held private and public gatherings and occasionally spent the night. And the new prophet spent part of each day at the Garter house, you know, attending to correspondences and having interviews and signing temple recommends. And they would hold prayer meetings on Thursday nights. The first presidency would in the Gardo house. And uh, the Salt Lake Temple at this point, you know, it takes like 40 years to construct. So it's still not being built. Um, but they would talk about that. They would talk about ZCMI, the Zion's Cooperative Mercantile Institution that they were setting up. They would talk about Congress and um, new apostles and all of that. And so um, Wilford Woodruff tried to stay there, but his family would not stay in the Gardo house. The church was under even more political pressure, and a lot of their property would be confiscated. Wilford Woodruff really thought he was in charge of the temporal salvation of church members, and so this is when the manifesto comes in. So we're going to talk about all of this, and all of this has heavily to do with the Gardo House. Just remember that when we're talking about all those things coming up, we're talking about the, the Gardo House. But it really does affect this. They would hold a special meeting. Church leaders would hold a special meeting on October 5th, 1890 in the Gardo House to discuss a recent telegram sent from Washington, D.C. by territorial delegate John T. Kane about the manifesto. And so, I mean, the Gardo House is just there for everything. They, it held all of these really, really important meetings. There was... Uh, an institute founded, Keeley Institute, came and sort of took over the rent of the house. They would um, force the church out of the mansion with this $450 rent. And it, the house was leased to the Keeley Institute for 200 per month, which was like half the, of what the Mormons had been been forced to pay. So there's obviously some huge discrimination going on. The Keeley Institute was an organization founded in 1880 by Leslie and Rott Keeley for the treatment of alcohol and drug addiction. And Keeley's cure was allegedly made from double chloride of gold, but it was actually a composition of atropine, strychnine, arsenic, kinoka, and glycerin. And patients at the Institute were gradually weaned from their habits by receiving periodic ingestions of the stuff and would ingest this formula for two hours and then they had to, you know, follow this health regime to, to be treated. And it didn't get a lot of attention until 1891 when the Chicago Tribune published a number of articles praising the work and the popularity, you know, because then we have this sort of temperance idea of movement starting to come in. So the Keeley Movement Institute would rent the Gardo House 
and it was said to be this great treatment center for a long time. It was predominantly middle-class men, although ladies visiting the Institute for Treatment were also assured of seclusion and privacy. And the Institute only was in the, the Gardo House for a little over a year. In 1893, President Benjamin Harrison pardoned the polygamists and restored their civil rights. And so a joint re resolution would also restore church property. So on August 15, 1894, Wilford Woodruff recorded in his journal, quote, I went to the Gardo with Cannon and Smith, Clausen and Trumbo. The building was badly damaged by the Keeley Institute. The church ex sort of expended more than $2,000 to clean and repair the damages to the mansion. However, they eventually decided to discontinue using the Gardo house as the official church home, and they made arrangements to rent the mansion to Mr. and Mrs. Isaac Trumbo. And now Trumbo was a non-Mormon and had been born in the Utah Territory and then moved to California as a young man. And he became interested in Utah mining and railroad properties. So he visited Salt Lake and while it was visiting, while Utah was fighting its sixth battle, sixth battle for statehood. And Truman sort of laid his business ventures aside and helped Utah get statehood. He was really smart. He was a really good entrepreneur, really good political, um, had a really great political connection. So he helped with this. Um, and he helped get get statehood. So he thought he would be rewarded by a senatorship. And so they left they his family left California and established their residency in Utah. And as a favor to church leaders, the couple decided to move into the Gardo house to act as a host for dignitaries. Emma Trumbo along with the interior decorators came to Utah ahead of her husband to prepare the mansion for occupancy. Her arrival caused a huge flutter flutter of excitement among the society leaders who sort of anticipated this lavish San Francisco-style like parties that would be coming in the Gardo house. So the Trumbo spent months and great sums of money to redecorate the house and transport a lot of their beautiful furnishings from San Francisco to the Gardo house. And they, they had, you know, the whole society upper class were in a big sort of, you know, wave of excitement for this. One visitor toured the mansion with Emma and pointed out the various places of conce concealment in the house, such as the hollowed walls, mattresses where polygamists had hidden from federal lawmen, secret passages, all of that. He also called her attention to a crack in the boarded ceiling of the Gardo house through which fugitives would watch their pursuers. Um, so it was really this sort of like curiosity at the time. In 1896, Trumbo wrote a letter to church leaders reminding them of his great sacrifices and his desire to become one of Utah's first senators. He arrived in Salt Lake City after his wife. He was hoping to avoid a brass brown or crowd at the rail railway station. You know, he was, he was trying to avoid this, but there was no fanfare that came, and so he felt really bitter. Like, he wanted to avoid it, but there was no fanfare when he arrived, so he was really bitter. Emma, his wife, later recalled, quote, He might as well have chosen a week or a day for all the difference it would have made. What the Mormons wanted was statehood gratitude. They had flown to the mountaintops and frozen there, end quote. That, that sort of incident where he did, incidents where he didn't get the sort of fanfare he wanted would be a symbol of things to come. Um, he would never become a senator, and he sort of things did not work out well, and he sort of became really embittered by the Mormons. He sort of expected that his help to get statehood would get him a, 
you know, this place in the leadership, even though he was a non-Mormon, but he did, I don't think he really understood exactly how deeply ingrained it was. Um, he, he became more and more unpopular. It's said that his wife helped with that because she wrote bitter and outrageous falsehoods about Utah, supposedly, and gave a lot of the Mormons what she would say uneasiness. They never quite felt sure of her. So they moved out of the Gardo house and returned to San Francisco. Um, William B. Preston, a member of the church's presiding bishopric, uh, sent them a bill of rent due for the mansion and, and claimed that they had spent $17,000 on the home. And they were furious by this. The problem compounded when a San Francisco newspaper reported that Trumbo had been the church's fin- financial agent using money and property to further church goals. So he had a scandal of his own in San Francisco. Um, let's see. The first presidency was involved in this. It became this big popular scandal. Who, you know, who owed money? Who spent money on what? So then the church leaders were told that a man named Alfred William McCune and his wife, Elizabeth, were building a new home and wanted to rent the mansion for a few years until it was ready. So they set rent at $150 per month. So McCune moves in, and he has political goals as well. They live in there for a while. They had many prominent positions or connections in the church, including, uh, I think Elizabeth was friends with Brigham Young's daughter, Susan Young Gates. Elizabeth was also a very uh, active, active and involved woman in suffrage. She attended the 1889 International Congress of Women in London, and she was voted patron of the of the organization and entertained by Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle. So she's a very prominent woman suffragist. When she lived in the in the Gardo house, they repainted the interior. They added many beautiful touches and furnishings and fittings. And they decorated the parlors and halls with marble statuary from Italy. They had several children while they lived there. Um, and even their children were said to be little entrepreneurs, setting up a little lemonade stand in front of the newly constructed Alta Club on South Temple. And um, they say that McCune was surprised to see that, that he was a little embarrassed when he was going into Alta Club to see his children. And sent his children home, which I think is kind of cute. When they moved to their new house that had been built, the McCune Mansion on 2nd North Main, the McCunes took with them all their furnishings and decorations from the Gardo House. The church at this time would be heavily in debt from the Edmunds-Tucker Act. The government really breaks the church at this point. So they decide to sell the Gardo House to Colonel Edward F. Holmes at the sacrificial price of only $46,000. And... This would be in 1901, and the new era for this stately old home would begin. It achieved the height of its glory when it was occupied by Holmes and his wife, Susan Bransford Emery Holmes, who was famous as, as Utah's Silver Queen. She was um, known by friends as Susie, and um, she came to her fortune by Park City's Mayflower and the Silver King Mine, so she was super rich. She, had, she was a widow when she was introduced to the colonel, who was one of her business partners. And she was 16 years younger than him, but they kind of fell in love and had this very public, like, sort of romantic courtship in the papers. They were married in 1899. After they had a two-year honeymoon in Europe, they returned to Utah and they purchased the Gardo house. He buys it as a birthday present for Susie. And there were rumors at the time that the com- couple planned to raise the mansion to make way for a more magnificent sort of palatial residence. Of course... 
These rumors were laid to rest when they spent $75,000 to refurbish their home. They bought it for $46,000. They spent $75,000 to refurbish it. They had purchased in Europe tons of carpets and furnishings and paintings and bric-a-brac and all this stuff. So they hire Williams W. William J. Sinclair, an interior decorator from Chicago, to redecorate the house. Um, when it was completed in 1901, the Holmeses threw a lavish party to celebrate the renovation, and it was hailed by local newspapers as the most brilliant reception of the in the history of Salt Lake City. A society magazine in Chicago even published about it, describing the mansion's 43 rooms in detail. Here's a quote from it, quote, the walls were salon of old rose satin brocade and the woodwork of ivory enamel. A Rosita green carpet covers the floor as background for rugs of priceless value in Persian silk and some skins of great beauty. A second interior is of the dining room where the design is gothic. The ceiling, woodwork, and all the furniture are in Belgian oak. At present, the side walls are in a dull gold with bronze, dull greens, red, and silver in gothic design. The carpet is a rich red and the draperies are of red with application of gold cloth midway between the two rooms a tiny a tiffany electric fountain is placed on the table so arranged that upon feasting occasions the tables may be extended and united with the lovely fountain as a centerpiece in artistic equipment the house is magnificent magnificently magnificent so for a long time this garden house kind of becomes the thing brigham young wanted it to be it's this gathering place for elite People. However, these elite people now at this time would be predominantly non-Mormon. They would be senators, governors, um, financiers, owners of the Salt Lake Tribune, prominent military officers from Fort Douglas, clergymen that didn't involve Mormons. They would stay at home for two days each week to take friends in, and it was said that they received two to three hundred visitors a week that just wanted to come see the home. Now... It was Mormon's turns to sort of gaze at the Gardo house and be jealous of it and wonder what went on inside. It was said that children of President Joseph F. Smith, who resided across the street at the Beehive house, would wistfully watch the comings and goings at the Holmes's residence. There were endless dinners, luncheons, receptions, teas, dances, card parties, and other events for them to watch. And some nights they would put their beautiful red carpet from their door on the sidewalk to greet their expected visitors. So you can imagine what that looked like to watch. Women would come in, you know, with their black capes and women in furs and always arrived in elegant horse-drawn carts. And newspapers would report on all of this. This is what people would watch. And it was said that, you know, they had these famous orchestras come in, local local musicians and foreign musicians. And she always decorated, the Susie would always decorate the mansion with the best flowers in Utah. They would have private performances there. Um, the Boston Symphony or Orchestra was was said to come, and I mean, it was just this amazing, amazing time in the early 1900s. In 1903, they began to build a two-story building to the west of the Gardo House, which cost approximately $10,000, and it was used as a garage on the first floor, and the second floor was an art gallery to hold all the art that they had gotten in you in Europe and in Asia. There was electric lamps now at this point. There's all this fancy art. And they would, they received guests and held this big party to show this art gal gallery. And it was considered to be one of the finest in the West, filled with the best works of old masters, as well as some of the finest examples of local artists and productions. They had porcelain sculptures, vases, Japanese embroidery, all of this stuff. I mean, Steinway pianos, you can go look at some of these pictures. It was amazing. Um, 
On June 16, 1917, a local newspaper announced that the Holmeses had decided to sell the Gardo house and move all their treasures to California. They sent a California architect whom they had previously hired to design a new re residence to Utah to examine the mansion. And they were the reason why they sent them there is they wanted to m move some of the Belgian glass windows with them. They also wanted to take some of the black walnut interior finishing and the spiral staircase of the Gardo house with them. They were disappointed when the architect said that they would have to leave their fixtures behind. This started speculation. It was this beautiful home, but now no one knew what to do, what was going to happen with it. Newspapers published rumors that the mansion would soon be demolished to make ways make way for newspapers and, or for apartment and office buildings. You can imagine what the church felt like, you know, being in debt and seeing this home. Um, there, there was also rumors that the Mormon church uh, representative, Charles W. Nibley, was going to purchase prop the property. But then the war came. And so all of these speculations kind of went on hold and people had to focus on other more important, more pressing things. At the end of the war, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, quote, Amelia's Palace was yesterday dedicated to the service of humanity and is to become the headquarters of... Okay, so during the war, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, quote, Amelia's Palace was yesterday dedicated to the service of humanity and is to become the headquarters of the Red Cross and Auxiliary Workers of Salt Lake County, an army of volunteers that is expected to reach a total of 10,000 within the next few weeks, end quote. So it's just like if you've been watching Downton Abbey and they use their palace for the war... It's the same thing with this. This becomes part of the war effort. Red Cross leaders had a desperate need to be a place where they could centralize their operations and regarded the mansion as, quote, ideal for the needs of their organization. So they move into the Ardo Gardo House in 1917, and there's, you know, fancy reception, brass band, and patriotic songs being being played. And the former Utah governor, William Spry, praises the Holmeses for their kindness um, in letting them occupy the home before they sell it. Now, the Red Cross workers were really excited to find carpets, curtains, desk tables in really great condition and ready for immediate use. Um, and the Salt Lake Tribune would report, report, quote, the first floor is devoted to the executive and supply departments. The second floor has offices. The large room to the east is an instruction room where classes will be held. To the south and west is located what is to be known as a transient room. This is regarded as one of the most important of facilities. It's being planned that any transient or visitor who desires to do Red Cross work and who has not time to attend classes regularly may be supplied with materials given the opportunity for work as desired. The art gallery and ballroom have been transformed into the Department of Surgical Dressings, end quote. So this house is fascinating. It tells the story of the American West in many ways. It's the story of triumph. It's the story of you know, success after this frontier battle. And then it it sort of transforms along with Utah history and this sort of place where fugitive, polygamous fugitives are being held. And then it becomes eventually the, the height of society. And then it becomes dedicated to the war effort. After the war, the Holmeses resumed their efforts to find a buyer for their house. And the LDS church would buy it in 1920 for $100,000. Two months after they bought it, the Red Cross vacated the mansion and would move the headquarters to the Utah State Capitol. 
And the church intended to use a mansion to um, house the LDS School of Music, which Desert News would call, quote, one of the greatest schools of music in the West. The school included a piano, vocal, and wind departments and served as training ground for the Tabernacle Choir. On October 2nd, 1920, the Desert News reported that the church would also reopen the art gallery as a permanent exhibition hall for local artists. However, during the next few months, the church received a purchase offer from the Federal Reserve Bank. The bank had quickly outgrown its its headquarters in the Desert Bank building and needed a new building in the site of downtown. So 1921, local newspapers reported that the church had sold the Gardo house to banks for $115,000. So they made a $15,000 profit. And the church leaders issued a statement assuring everyone that the School of Music would still be able to find a new place and it would be great. However... The Federal Reserve Bank did not want the Gardo House as a headquarters. They wanted, they wanted the property. They didn't want the Gardo House. And so this caused a lot of plant, a lot of problems. They, they said that they would move the mansion. They would actually relocate the mansion somewhere else. An article in the Desert News gave details concerning the plans to re- relocate the mansion. They said, quote, The moving of one of Salt Lake's oldest landmarks may be one of the most spectacular events staged in the city if the moving is found to be feasible. President Heber J. Grant said this morning he is having several streets of Salt Lake measured to see if there would be adequate passageway for moving the old Gardo house from its location on South Temple and State Streets. When in San Francisco last week, President Grant consulted one of the best-known engineering experts in the country in regard to moving of the building. The authorities said it could be done easily, provided five carloads of the necessary equipment could be shipped from San Francisco for removal, end quote. So this became a lot of buzz. All rumors came to an end on April 8, 1921, when newspapers announced that the mansion would not be moved, but would be torn down. I guess after researching the issue, church leaders became reluctant. The moving expenses were estimated at $20,000, which was way more than the church could afford. And they considered that the house was aging with its high ceilings, wedding stairways. It was outdated bathrooms. It was just too um, expensive to maintain. And so they tore it down. But anyway, I hope you weren't bored with that story. I find it fascinating. I think that story of that house tells so much, so much about the history of Utah. And I can't imagine all the things those walls had seen. And I think it's such a tragedy, such a tragedy that it was torn down. But um, I would recommend that you go to the links on the site where I got these information. A lot of it I just stole straight from the website. It's great. I got it from the history to go in utah.gov. So you can go and read that and see these fantastic pictures and read about this a little bit more in depth. So there are other polygamous structures that we need to talk about, but we'll talk about that as we talk about the history. But I thank you for listening and supporting the podcast. As always, go ahead and leave a donation at feministmornhousewivespodcast.org. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Year of Polygamy for Feminist Born Housewives podcast.